So John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does evil things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So me and my computer have had some words in the last couple of weeks. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, just out of nowhere, I went to print something and my printer didn't work. Now, my printer has worked since the time I got my computer. Basically, I just turned my computer on, pressed add printer, and it has printed perfectly. But for whatever reason, it just stopped working. So I tried troubleshooting it and tried to reinstall the drivers, uninstall the drivers, reinstall software from HP. I, you know, I did searches on the, uh, Google to try to find out what, what the problem was. Couldn't figure it out. So I asked other people that I knew, that, maybe, that knew a little bit about computers, if they had any ideas of how I could fix it. They didn't know. So then I spent some more time just trying to investigate, search. Nothing worked. So I thought I'll try contacting HP, because HP is the, one, uh, the manufacturer of my computer and the printer. And I found out that you can't get a hold of HP to save your life unless you have a warranty or some kind of service plan. So I couldn't get a hold of HP. So then I think, well, maybe I could try contacting Microsoft. Maybe it's an issue with the Microsoft system. So I contact Microsoft and talk to this person, and then they you know, took control of my computer. You know how they you know, take control of your computer and, then, and, and do stuff. So he takes control, and he tries all the things that I tried. Nothing works. And then I knew it, he, I was in trouble when he said, uh, let me check my resources. I knew that was a bad sign. So then he starts trying all these different things, and then he started encrypting my hard drive. I don't have any idea why he was doing that, probably installing some virus on my computer. But that's what he did, and he says, well, this will take about 20 minutes, and then after that, I'll call you back. So I waited, and I waited, 
and waited, never called back. And again, I can't call him back because if I call back, they put me on hold. Then they put me with whoever, you know, whichever service representative happens to be on. So the next day, I call back, talk to a different person. He tries kind of the same things that the other person tries. And he says, well, I think you maybe need some updates in your Windows system. So he downloads all these updates. Then after that, he did some other things, reinstalled the driver in kind of a backwards way, and then the printer worked. I was happy. You know, at this point, I'd probably spent four or five hours maybe on trying to fix this, but I'm like, finally, it works. So then I start working on my computer, and then I get what is affectionately called the blue screen of death. There's this error message that says, Windows is shutting down. Windows has an error. It needs to shut down. First time, I thought, well, it is what it is. You know, hopefully it doesn't happen again, but it happened again and again. Happened three times. One time I was working on my message and almost lost, you know, the work that I had done. So I'm like, there's bigger issues now than the printer. So I call back the next day, get a different person. He tries, you know, a number of different things. He's like, well, you have some updates installed on your system that are incompatible with your machine. These same updates that the person the day before had installed. Okay. So he uninstalls these updates from Windows, and it was great. I didn't get that blue screen of death again. The only problem was the printer didn't work. So I'm about to give up at this point, and I don't know what else to do. So then I, the next day, I finally called one last time, and I tried to explain to the, person, the lady I was talking to what the person did that kind of fixed it. I, I didn't know enough to be able to fix it myself, but I kind of knew what that person did when he reinstalled the software, the driver. So finally I explained it to her and she was able to fix it. And since then I haven't had any issues. But it, the sad part about it was, you know, I probably spent six, seven hours, you know, some of those phone calls were like an hour long where they're taking control of my computer. And if the person on the other end of the line knew what they were doing, it was a very simple fix, probably five or ten minutes. And the worst part about it was as I'm talking to them, I'm thinking, if they're the ones who make these computers, that make the operating system, and they don't know how to fix an issue like this, I don't know where else to turn. I mean, you'd think that the people making the operating system would be able to fix a simple issue like that. Thankfully, I was able to get it fixed eventually. Uh, in the passage that we're looking at today, we're looking at a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he starts talking to Jesus and asking him questions. And there's some simple basic truths that Jesus communicates to Nicodemus that Jesus feels that Nicodemus really should know. He's a teacher of Israel, a Pharisee. And Jesus feels like he should know these things, and yet, for whatever reason, Nicodemus is completely baffled by everything that happens. So we're told Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews, probably a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, and he comes to Jesus at nighttime. There's a, two possible reasons why he comes to Jesus at nighttime. The first reason was that perhaps he came there kind of covertly. He didn't want to draw attention to the fact that he was given Jesus this kind of hearing and attention. The other option is that he just came there at nighttime because 
perhaps there were le less crowds. You know, Jesus was a pretty popular guy, people, you know, coming and talking to him during the day. And it was believed that theology was uh, best spoken of at nighttime. So maybe he just came because it was quiet to talk to Jesus. We don't know for sure. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these things, for no one can do these things that you do. Now, in this statement, Nicodemus isn't stating his complete faith in Jesus. Certainly, he's showing an openness to Jesus, a respect for Jesus, in that he calls Jesus a rabbi. Yet, he doesn't understand exactly who Jesus is. He calls him a rabbi, a teacher who's sent from God, not the Son of God. When he calls him this, he could be, Jesus could be in the category of any number of other teachers who are sent from God. Could be in the category of someone like Moses. He could be in the category of one of the prophets. And so, in essence, it seems like Nicodemus almost sees Jesus as a peer or a colleague who has this special endowment from God, but is not, in fact, the Son of God. At least he doesn't see that yet. And Jesus makes a statement to him. He says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, in order for Nicodemus and others to see the kingdom of God, there has to be a radical transformation of who they are. There had to be a substantial change in one's thinking and behavior. And what Jesus says here about the new birth says in the text, uh, your translation probably says born again. It also could mean born from above. You might see a footnote uh, at the bottom of your text. Uh, that's the Greek word can be mean born again or born from above. But this is something that's pretty straightforward in the scriptures. It's something that should be obvious to a teacher of Israel. We see this in a number of places in the Old Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord God, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, talking about the new covenant, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and, and bring them... Uh, took by the, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then finally, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five to 28 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So that's the new birth that's spoken of in the Old Testament. And it doesn't use the words born again, but it's clear from these passages that the Old Testament anticipates a time of renewal when God would uh, regenerate people's hearts, when God would give them the ability to serve him, that there would be this new covenant and new birth. And yet, for some reason, Nicodemus is, is just baffled by this. So why is he so baffled by what Jesus is saying? 
Well, the first reason could be just the language. Maybe he misunderstands what Jesus is saying. Uh, you know, talking about born again, and maybe this, this term isn't uh, used exactly in the Old Testament. Maybe the terminology threw him off. And he, at first, he's like, well, uh, how can a man be born again? How can he enter his mother's womb again when he's old? Thinks it's a, a literal thing that Jesus is talking about. But there might be even something deeper that's going on beneath the surface. Now, remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, member of the ruling class of the Sanhedrin, most likely. And the Pharisees were a group that were known for their piety and their religious devotion. The Pharisees, as a group, started in the second century BC, and they started as a separatist movement. The word for Pharisee actually means the separated one. And so they were created as a movement of people who were going to be separate from the nations, the Gentiles, but they were also to be separate from the other Jews who maybe weren't as religious or who were not religious at all. And so they were known for their piety and their religious devotion. That piety was demonstrated in the New Testament by a number of examples of what were called fence laws. Now, a fence law was kind of like a law to keep you from breaking the actual law. For example, in today's world, you know, you might think of, well, you, you know, you're not supposed to speed. You're not supposed to break the speed limit. And so a Pharisee might say, well, to keep you from speeding, you shouldn't drive. Because if you're not driving, then you're certainly not going to speed. And so they would add to that command, add to that command, do not speed, do not drive. And so they'd have all these fence laws to keep themselves away from actually breaking the actual law. And, and then there was a number of debates among the, the, the rabbis and among uh, the scribes in particular about what the law meant. And the, you know, there was this talk about you know, not doing work on the Sabbath, and that was clear from the Old Testament scriptures. But then they would try to figure out, like, what does that mean? And they'd talk about debates like, uh, is it okay to tie a knot on the Sabbath? And they'd say, well, you know, if it's a part of a woman's clothing, it's okay. But if it's a part of a fishing net, maybe not. And so they'd have all of these intense debates. And they were uh, religiously very devout. Spent a lot of time fasting, praying, giving to the poor. And so you have that context. That's kind of who Nicodemus is, and that's who Nicodemus' peers are. They're very religious. They're very devout. It's, they've made it their life's aim to keep the law. Now, when we talk about the idea of being born again or reborn, that concept in the scriptures, you know, is what I just talked about. That's the scriptural Old Testament background. And Nicodemus didn't think about that for whatever reason, but there was also kind of a cultural background of what it meant to be born again. And that cultural background was when a person who was from the nations and Gentile wanted to become a Jew, they would be baptized and then they would take on the principles, the teachings of Judaism, try to keep the, the law as best they could. And then it was often said that that person was reborn or born again, even, perhaps. Scholar William Barclay says it this way. The rabbis would say a proselyte who embraces Judaism is like a newborn child. So apart from Nicodemus' kind of confusion about the terminology of being born again, when you think about being born again in the ancient 
Jewish culture of the Pharisees, they probably thought about a person who was a Gentile, a pagan, becoming a Jew. And perhaps Nicodemus thought to himself, so wait a minute, Jesus. I'm a Pharisee. I keep the law. I fast. I pray. I do everything that I can to honor God. And you're saying that I have to be born again. I thought it was the Gentiles. I thought it was the nations. I thought it was the evildoers who had to be born again. And you're saying that everyone has to be born again. And Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. This should be obvious. But the Pharisees and the people of Israel in general have used the law as kind of a badge of their own righteousness. The law was given to Israel as an expression of their faith to God. It was kind of... A, a way that they could kind of put their faith in the practice. That was the one purpose of it. But also, it was meant to point people to their need for a Savior, to show them that they needed something different, that they needed a fundamental change that the law couldn't fix. And yet, Nicodemus has no conception of this. Instead, the law has been used among the Pharisees to boost their own pride. And yet we know from the course of reading the Gospels that they didn't keep the law all that well. And what they often did was they kept the letter of the law, but not the heart of the law. It's like they would offer sacrifices, but they'd defraud the poor. They would give to the temple, but they would make this big show of it so that they would get the credit from it. And we see throughout the Gospels that they're known for their hypocrisy. And Jesus says in this passage that there has to be a fundamental change. It can't be just a self-improvement project. It can't be just try harder. There has to be a fundamental change of the heart. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, once said this, if a man is stealing nuts and bolts from a railway track, and in order to change him, you send him to college, at the end of his education, he will steal the whole railway track. In a similar way, the Pharisees had a knowledge. They had a devotion, but it's headed in the wrong direction. Jesus says there has to be a fundamental change. And again, Nicodemus is baffled by this. And then Jesus says something else to him. Uh, he says something interesting in verses 13 to 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may it have eternal life. Here is Jesus is referencing the story from Numbers chapter 21. I find it uh, one of the most fascinating stories in the Bible and how Jesus uses it here. Uh, in this story in Numbers chapter 21, God has led the people of Israel out of Egypt and uh, they're starting to conquer some uh, land in, in Canaan and they start to get impatient and they start to grumble against God and they say, basically, why did you bring us out of Egypt? They grumble against God, they grumble against Moses, and in essence what they're doing is they're saying, God, I don't think you have good things in store for us. I think it was better in the land of slavery. I think it's better where we were than where you're taking us. And so God in judgment sent these fiery serpents among the people. I don't know what a fiery serpent is, but it sounds a little bit scary to me. So all these people start dying from these fiery serpents that bite people and then they start to realize this is a serious deal they repent they turn to God and then God tells Moses to build this bronze snake to put it on a pole 
You've, you may have seen that image representing the medical society before. That's where this, this uh, image comes from. So he tells, Jesus, or tells uh, Moses, put this snake on the pole. Then if anyone is bitten by the snake, all they have to do is look to this snake and they'll be healed. And it's a picture of what's coming. And so these people are bit by the snake, and it's a picture of dependence, right? I mean, they're bit by the snake, and this venom is oozing through their veins, and they don't have any other hope but to look up. And Jesus references this here. It says, in the same way that Moses lifted up that snake, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever looks at him would be saved. See, there was a different kind of poison that was affecting the people of Israel. It's the poison of sin. The Pharisees, Nicodemus, and all Israelites, and all of us in general, are affected by this disease of sin. And the only remedy is dependence. The only remedy is grace, looking up to the one who hung on the tree for us. And so Nicodemus doesn't get this, but Jesus says it's the way of dependence. It's the way of grace. And so you have, again, one of Israel's premier religious leaders. And amazingly, despite all of the evidence in the Old Testament, he knows nothing of grace, and he knows nothing of the new birth. I think it's easy sometimes to be hard on the characters in the Bible. It might be easy for us to be hard on Nicodemus, but I think that sometimes maybe we're a bit more like him than we'd like to realize. I think sometimes what we do is we believe that we believe salvation is by grace. We know that. We know there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor, and we simply need to look and believe in Christ to be saved. We know that in the terms of salvation, but then as we go and live our lives, we sometimes move from dependence to independence. We try to do things our own way. We try to figure things out ourselves. We focus on our own performance. We focus on doing things for God rather than God doing things through us. And we're so conditioned in our culture to have this can-do attitude, like I can handle this myself. This past week, I had another computer issue. I probably shouldn't be touching any electronics anytime soon. But I go on our website, the church's website, to update a few things. And previously, we had had a service, our ministry, that helped us maintain our website and uh, they lost their funding, and so they're going into a different direction now. So we're just kind of handle it ourselves. So I go up and I started, um, I was going to update a few things, and I see all these error messages on the website. Now, I don't know anything about website design or coding or anything like that, and I see all these error messages. And usually it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but I'm looking forward to this week, and we have those flyers that are going out for the Christmas breakfast on Tuesday. And then people are going on our website to sign up. And so I'm like, we got to get this fixed. But I don't know where to turn. And so I start doing, you know, searches and Google. And I couldn't even understand the instructions that were telling me what to do to try to fix this issue. Like it was telling me all this language of, of coding and plugins and all this stuff. I have no idea what it's talking about. And so I didn't know where to turn, so I reached out to that ministry that had helped us, but they were already gone on vacation and didn't know where to turn. So I do this search of, like, uh, looked up services of, you know, people who helped with websites. 
And I found this service that was, said they could help fix a website in like an hour. And you had to pay this fee, and then they'd fix your website. So I thought to myself, here, I'm on to something. I'm going to be able to fix it. Now, this was at nighttime, maybe 6, 7 o'clock. I was at home, and Stephanie knew I was kind of upset about this. Uh, just worried that I wasn't going to be able to figure it out. And she didn't know, you know, exactly what I was working on, but she says, have you prayed about it? I was like, no. And I thought to myself, well, I just figured it out. I don't need to pray about it now. I, I just found this service. They're going to fix it for me. I don't need to worry about it now. I just, it's already fixed. Well, of course, what happened was uh, I signed up for that service, and they weren't able to fix the issue. I think the next day I, I did say a prayer to God. And then just like that, I was led to the right person, and it was fixed within a short amount of time very easily. But it's amazing how we have that attitude that I can do it myself, and then if it doesn't work out, then I'll call upon God. But how backwards is that? We should be calling on God first, and then doing everything that we can and everything that he tells us. I think we have a problem in our culture. We have this attitude where we don't depend upon God. 1863, President Lincoln designated April 30th as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And he made a proclamation on that day that ironically fits our day quite well. He said, It is the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow. Yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. And to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by a history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be put but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. This is the part that stuck out to me the most. He says, intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown, but we have forgotten God. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. I think this has been the case in our country. We felt so self-sufficient, like we could handle anything. And then we had this pandemic that happened. And it seems like, seemed like some of that was going to change. Like we'd start to realize how dependent we are on God. But sadly, I feel like that's shifting again. Sadly, now... You know, we're looking to possibly the end of this pandemic coming, and what are we going to attribute it to? The work and providence of God, the grace of God? No, our country is going to attribute it to a vaccine, therapeutics, that it was the scientists who brought us out of this darkness. It was these leaders that brought us out of this darkness. Our governor has said, in so many words, that it won't be God that brings us out of this. It will be New Yorkers who work together and do what they're supposed to do. I mean, how sad would it be if we go through all of these things that we've gone through in the last several months 
and we, we, we enter and leave it just as independent as we were before. At the end of the interaction with Nicodemus, Jesus says this, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now, whenever I've read this verse in the past, and I think about the darkness, I think about you know, people you think about evil as hanging out in the darkness. Murderers, adulterers, pedophiles, liars, slanderers, those are the people that hang out in the darkness. And I think that's true. Those people hang out in the darkness. But it's not just those people. It's also religious people. Remember when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus he comes to Jesus at nighttime. He comes to Jesus in the darkness. I think Jesus' point here is that everyone needs to be born again. Everyone needs to be changed by the truth of God's Holy Spirit. Everyone needs to look up to the man who hung on a tree to be saved. Now, of course, in this passage, we're talking about primarily salvation, about being born again. And if there's anybody here who, or who is listening who's never been born again, you can turn to Jesus today. Put your faith and trust in him to the man who hung on a tree for you and experienced forgiveness in life. But I think there's a deeper application for those of us who are believers as well. And I think it shows us the fact that all of us are dependent upon grace. All of us are dependent upon Christ, the one who hang, hung on a tree for us. And I think I would go so far as to say that Christians need to be born again each day through the Spirit of God. Of course, we're not talking about being saved each day. You know, we know that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we're saved, we're born again. We go, enter from, go from death to life. The old things are gone, the new has come. But each day, we need to look to Jesus. Each day, we need to express our dependence upon Him. Each day, we need to be renewed by His Holy, Holy Spirit. Each day we need to run to the light so that our evil deeds are exposed and we can repent of those things and turn them over to grace. There's a translator by the name of Des Oatrich. He was working in Papua New Guinea and uh, he was working on translating this passage that we're looking at today. And when he came to the words born again, he didn't know exactly how he should translate them. And so he asked another fellow translator who happened to be a native how to translate it. And this other translator explained this custom. He said, sometimes a person goes wrong and will not listen to anybody. He says, we all get together in the village and place that person in the midst of us. The elders talk to him for a long time. They say, you have gone wrong. They say, all your thoughts, intentions, and values are wrong. Now you have, become a, now you have to become a baby again and start to relearn everything right. It was the answer that Daz was looking for. Today, the words of John 3, verse 3 in, in Benumerian reads this way. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he becomes like a baby again and relearns everything from God's word. As Christians, we need to have that same attitude. As Christians, we need to come to God's word and relearn everything again and again.
As Christians, we need to come into the light each day and rely on the grace of our Savior who died on the cross for us. As Christians, we need to be born again each day. As Christians, we need to rely on grace, rely on the Holy Spirit, and rely on the mercy of God each and every day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that your love is not dependent upon our performance, that our identity is sealed in what you've done for us on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for those of us who are believers. We thank you that you've caused us to be born again. You've replaced a heart of stone and given us a heart that wants to please you. Lord, I pray for anyone who's maybe listening today, online or in the building, Lord, who doesn't know you, that today would be the day that they put their faith and trust in you. Lord, for the rest of us who are believers, Lord, I pray that each day we would live lives of dependence. That we wouldn't get to a place like Nicodemus who should have known about grace, who should have known about the new birth, but was blinded. Lord, help us to never move beyond grace. Help us to always recognize who we are and the fact that we need you each moment of every day. Lord, we love you. We thank you for being there for us, even when we fail, even when we fall short. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.